This is a place for black people to share their stories, ideas, and perspectives. In a world that tries to define us, this is a space where we get to define ourselves, who we are, what we are, how we are, unashamed and unfiltered. In a world that tries to do that for us, this is a space where we reclaim our truth, narrating our own lives in our own voices. Welcome to the Black Monologues. 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 In this episode of Love in All Its Different Forms, you'll be meeting Katie. Katie is a 29-year-old superstar, studied at Cambridge. I actually went to school with her. Um, and honestly, I think it's one of the most beautiful journeys of friendship one can experience. Having known each other when we were younger, we reconnected when we were older, and we discovered how much we had both grown. She's someone who has gone on a journey in terms of learning how to love herself, how she is comfortable with defining herself, in spite of so many other people trying to define her for her. And in light of this week, this past week even, where we've seen this commission which insists that Britain is no longer institutionally racist. What's so important about Katie's episode and it being released now is that she talks about how she was brought up in a post-racial spirit with her parents, much like Kemi Badenoch's kids, and how she feels that it was important that she was told from a young age that race is something that matters, it's something that exists, and it doesn't mean that you need to feel trapped by it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be aware of how society may treat you in both positive and negative ways. Hopefully, listening to Katie's story, you will come to understand how important it is that we raise children being cognizant of the realities of racism and that that doesn't mean that they can't be who they are and it doesn't mean that they need to fit into certain boxes that they can create their own i hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as i enjoyed sitting down with my friend and listening to the journey she's gone on thank you katie your story is going to help so many people enjoy all opinions and perspectives are their own please keep an open mind my name is katie i identify as a british black mixed person blackness for me is diversity and it's the opposite of a monolith, it's a range of experiences, beautiful experiences that so many different people have and the very act of striving to understand it better and learning about it better is beautiful in itself and it's something I enjoy doing. My parents brought me up in this 90s vision of post-racial children as it were. That came from a place of love. I don't know whether I necessarily agree with it now because myself and my siblings could have been better prepared to deal with our blackness or you know, how society perceives us as people of colour. When you're a child, race isn't a thing. 
you're made aware at some point that people don't see you as white. It's almost like, you know, when dogs look into the mirror for the first time and they're a bit startled because they're like, oh, wow, that's my reflection. <laughs> Is that sort of reaction as a child to just different perspectives about you. I realised at six or seven, or maybe eight, around that age, spending time with my grandma in particular, who's Guyanese, when I became aware that the time I spent with that part of my family was very different to other children's experiences. The food and the language, just the general culture. I think that's when I realised I am not white. <laughs> Throughout school, throughout university, throughout my first job in finance, I was always the token person for diversity. Sometimes that can be quite jarring because, especially in the case of the sixth form college that I went to, you're put into these quite forced situations for photography opportunities, which is a very othering experience. You're there, you know, with a couple of other black students and Asian students from the school in this highly contrived situation to serve an explicit agenda into which you don't have much insight. And that was a recurring theme, I'd say, definitely in my first job in finance as one of the only non-white people on the trading floor that I worked. The tokenization was pretty constant. At the time, I, I didn't challenge it because I just didn't really know how to challenge it and have the language to. I knew it was weird and I felt weird about it, but I didn't feel empowered to particularly take charge of how my image was being used to further someone else's agenda. The lack of input on my part was, was not okay. And it's now something that I challenge. And that is due to just being much more comfortable in my identity and understanding my identity more and having almost like reclaimed it, you know? Mostly men perceive women of color and specifically mixed women of color that you're another box to tick. Oh, I've, uh, never, I've never tried, tried one of you lot before. before. This kind of exoticization is a real sense of otherization when you hear that. And it really makes you feel like, what? Oh, so I'm, I'm flavor of the month now? <laughs> Especially uncomfortable when it comes from a, a sexual position, as those comments always have. And they've nearly been uninvited as well. I feel startled out of myself because you're just reminded once again that you're in this box of exotic otherness that someone has just abruptly put you in when you're just there out there trying to be you. Throughout history, we've been taught or engineered to think that blackness is this monolith. In colonial times, this construct of blackness was made to specifically put people into boxes. And I think what's great now is the concept of blackness is being redefined, it's being reclaimed as something that we own and, and we can create for ourselves. I feel like I almost have to tiptoe around the world of my identity, to be honest. Throughout my life, a lot of people have denied my blackness. They've said to me, you're light skin, you sound white, whatever that means. You, you don't, don't have, black, have hair. black hair. Being now 29 years old, I know who I am and I feel very certain who I am. And I'm, the way I identify is not accepted by a lot of people. I constantly feel like when I explicitly say I have black heritage, I consider myself a mixed black person, I'm very proud of my blackness, it's, it's always questioned. It is hard to always be asked to kind of justify your identity. 
it felt frustrating and also quite isolating because I just didn't really know where I could occupy myself. It's isolating to to not necessarily be given welcome access to all black spaces, to feel like I have to explain why I'm sort of seeking to access some of those spaces, some of that companionship. And I think that's just because, like I was saying before, society has this box that considers blackness as a monolith and people who don't necessarily fit in that are always immediately challenged. But I also recognise, you know, I have a lot of privileges in the way I look specifically. I have lighter skin. I know that society does not treat me like a, a black woman necessarily and that has allowed me to walk through the world with privilege. And I'm very conscious I don't want to take up space at all for people who don't have my privilege. So I try to use that position for the better, but at the same time, it just shows how regressive our thinking is still in terms of how we, we otherize people and how we have these very kind of rigid definitions of ethnicity and identity. One of the things I've had to learn for myself, and perhaps this sort of comes into self-love, my identity is not up for debate. I know who I am, and even if I'm, I'm not easily fitting into boxes, that's not a problem for me. It's a problem about the boxes. Why do we have these boxes? Before I was being put into a box by somebody else. Now I've constructed my own box and it's not a square one, you know, it's a cool funky shape. People can deal with it and they can, they can ask me questions about it from a place of curiosity, but it's my box. And that's how I now move through the world and want to continue moving through the world. It's much more freeing. I loved everything about my grandma when I was growing up. She was one of my favourite people. And I have such happy memories spending time with her and still spending time with her. My grandmother is half black, descended from slaves, half Chinese, descended from indentured labourers, two products of British colonisation. There's a similar mix on my grandfather's side. She has been otherised as black her entire life and has had to reclaim her identity despite herself being a mixed person and the same with my mother. And both of them, interestingly, identify as Black British. That seems to make the most sense given the diversity of their actual ancestry and their experiences that they bring into the UK as first and second generation migrants, respectively. I think the real experiences I have from Blackness are listening to the stories that my grandmother told me of growing up in colonial Guyana and what that was like, and the process of coming to West London in the 1960s. She came over on a ship. It wasn't the Windrush one, I can't remember what it's called now. She undertook that journey that has now become so iconic and almost symbolic actually in, in recent years. By invitation, let's not forget, to contribute to our, our economy and our, our post-war society. And those stories, you know, I just, I loved hearing them growing up. I loved hearing about Guyana and she used to tell me some hilarious ones like tropical life, talk about like finding frogs in the kettle and like bats in the cupboard and stuff. And, I adored that and, and growing up the, the stories have become sort of slightly darker and some of her experiences have really uh, shaped my understanding of my family and of how I came to be me in this world today. That's really special to my identity, it's really important to my identity and it's helped me understand the world more, listening to those stories and those experiences. I grew up with the Disney idea of love and 
textbook idea of love in terms of thou shalt love your parents, etc, etc. As I've sort of grown older and had to deal with actual real-life relationships, you realise that you have to put in the effort to make relationships work, whether they're romantic or, or otherwise. So I think I, I get my ideas from love, from real-life experiences that I've been through. Love is an action, and specifically it's conscious action. It's almost like a constant decision that has to be made. We're almost told that being in love is like a state of being, like you either are in love or you're not in love and that's it. And my experiences of love, both romantic love and, you know, familial love, love with friends and stuff, is it's a process and it's always changing and it's dynamic. You have to navigate the dynamics of it constantly in order to make it work. It's not something you can expect to just work straight off the bat. It's much more hard work than you're ever led to believe. You have to actively construct a future with somebody. And the same applies for family, and the same applies for friendships. Friendships grow and change as, as you get older. You move apart from people, sometimes that's a conscious decision. And again, you move closer to people throughout life. And actually, I think that dynamism is what makes love so special, because it's something that's constantly adapting, constantly evolving. And the product of that adaptation and evolution between two different people is what love becomes. A classic example of this for me is, is my relationship with my, my partner, who I've been with for 10 years now. We went to the same school. We would both admit now we were completely different people 10 years ago, just not the same at all. And I think the reason we're still together is because, you know, it sounds cliche to say we've grown up together but we actively made the decision to grow up together. It's not about saying, oh, he's changed, I'm also changing, you know, we're just going different ways. It's about saying he's changing and I can see I'm changing and we want to change together. It, it works for us to change together. He said to me that he recently appreciated that he was in a mixed-race relationship because one of his friends had told him he was in a mixed-race relationship. And his first reaction was, well, don't be ridiculous, ridiculous. that's just Katie, Katie. you know, like, it's, it's, it's Katie. He was trying to say that he doesn't see my race most of the time because, you know, we've grown up together and it's just not something he consciously thinks about. And he was almost startled to consider that other people perceive us as being in a mixed-race relationship. I thought it was a really interesting admission by him because it reminded me what I was saying earlier of when you're a child growing up and you suddenly realise how other people perceive you is, is different. I don't feel like I've had very much overt or explicit judgement from people for being in a mixed-race relationship, but it's always a bit startling when people put a label on it like that, you know? But I guess my, my parents are obviously in a mixed-race relationship and my mum is black, my dad is, is British. And that was a much bigger thing in the 80s and 90s. Well, I get a sense that they were constantly sort of otherized, especially growing up in, in Bedford, which was, well, when I was growing up, was a predominantly white area. I just think talking to children about race in today's world is something that needs to be done sensitively. The idea of just ignoring race when it's just out there in the world is, is not necessarily something 
think that prepared me particularly well for the real world. If I were to speak to eight-year-old me, I would be frank. I would say, look, this is the way the world, or some people in the world, might react to you. And this is why they're reacting to you this way. It's coming from this particular place of ignorance or this particular place of maybe something more sinister. Eight-year-olds, and especially me at eight-year-old, eight years old, you know, they're not stupid. Eight-year-olds are curious, they want to know about the world, and I don't think they appreciate being talked down to. So I would have said that to my eight-year-old me, but I then would have said, your identity is yours to create. It's yours to shape, and it's yours to explore. You don't even need to know your identity now. It's something that you should just bear in mind as you walk through the world and experience the world. Those little gems of wisdom uh, would have really helped eight-year-old me. <laughs>